speak. What comes next? <laughs> what comes next after last week's talk on what comes next? A second talk on what comes next. So last time we explored this question, which uh, I framed partly in terms of the beautiful poem by, uh, by Mary Oliver. Uh, and we framed the question as, what comes next in this uh, wild, precious life of ours? What comes next? Uh, Mary Oliver, I'll read just the end of the poem in which she expressed this. This is in the poem called The Summer Day. And it expresses this quality of, of wonder. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And Ruth was so kind to make an image of a, looks like kind of a, what a, um, a, a, a sky, di- skydiver sky with a wisp of, with a trail behind the skydiver in the blue sky, going in all sorts of directions with the caption, what comes next for this wild and precious life? Wow. So we'll leave this up as a kind of uh, inspiration. And the question came out of the one of the discussions we had or one of the listing of questions which people most wanted to see uh, explored when we uh, mentioned them in October. One way the question was framed is, I'm not sure what to do now with my life. It came out of a person who had retired. What do I do? I feel like I want something that has energy and passion and vitality. What comes next? I don't know. How do we explore that. Or it also comes out of the question that was mentioned, uh, how do I know when it's appropriate to move on, to leave a job or leave a relationship or to uh, do something large? Uh, How do I I, uh, know what comes next in that sense? And we, at the end of the last time, we invited us to explore during the last week this theme of knowing what comes next or waiting for what comes next in two senses. One was this very large sense of what, what is the next big thing? 
you know, is one way to say it. Or what, what co- wants to come next that's, that's large, that, has, that is a major shift in our lives. But we also encouraged ourselves to look at, at how we answer that question in small ways. How do we know what comes next this afternoon? How do we know what comes next when we have some open time? How do we know what comes next in my conversation with my partner? How do I know what comes next as I decide what to have for lunch (laughs) or whatever? And so it's actually something, it's a question we can look at both in its uh, larger (coughs) implications and also in the very everyday, ordinary ways that we have to invite that question of what comes next. There's also a way in which we can remember that second part of the, of the question, which is what comes next for this wild and precious life. And it's uh, really to remember that we do have a wild and precious life. Isn't that good to remember? Don't We forget it, don't we? Things get routinized. Things get ordinary. And to open up and realize that this... Uh, um, Having a consciousness, awareness, having this capacity to have love come through us and wisdom, from one perspective, it's very mysterious. It's very magical. There are a lot of um, objects in the world which don't have it in the same way we do. Although physicists tell us that um, even electrons have love and wisdom. And so it may be something more pervasive through the universe, but still there's a way in which there's a gift that we have and there's that perspective that is uh, very powerful in which we can uh, see ourselves and see others as having this quality of what in Buddhist tradition is sometimes called Buddha nature or having this capacity of depth or having the capacity to open to immensities to open to um, incredible wisdom, incredible beauty, incredible sensitivity. And to remember that we have that capacity is one of the aspects of this uh, question, what comes next for my and your wild and precious life. Remembering that precious quality or the, the, the quality of depth is one way that we can really see that partly to explore this question is to explore faith, is to explore our sense of, of trust. And as we explored some last time, it's the, the, the quality of our practice in general, this, this practice of mindfulness, of listening, of seeing clearly, of opening, strengthens the quality of faith and trust. We have more of a sense as we practice more of sort of the larger frame of our life being a frame of the unfolding into our depths, as it were. And it's a beautiful way to hold uh, the perspective. And so to really ask that question, what comes next, in part, it is to deepen our faith and our trust. Our trust that there is something that comes next. You know, I can imagine, imagine a Woody Allen movie and it says, 
how do we know there's something comes next? Or I remember, I, I just had this memory flash through me just at this moment of, I think of uh, when I was a college student, probably 18 or 19, and riding on Greyhound buses through the south, going on some spring break at night. And, you know, just being, I remember being alone in a Greyhound bus, like at 9 or 10 at night, just going on some interminable highway. And saying, and just thinking, you know, exploring the mystery of consciousness and thinking to myself, isn't it mysterious that things keep happening? They could just stop. Or they could just still, like, you know, like what, like the pause the pause button on a VCR or something. Just, that sometimes happens, you know. And it's mysterious that uh, part of this uh, spirit of asking the question, what comes next, is to uh, open to this mysterious aspect. You know, or um, I remember the, the philosopher Heidegger once asked, we should take seriously the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And we, you know, it, it, do you feel your mind expanding a little bit? <coughs> it's really to, to ask these kind of questions. And there's something that, that develops that is, is a kind of faith or trust in, in the unfolding of into the depths as a way to hold our experience and to what, in a way to hold all of life. And of course, this means that we can hold that also when it's difficult or in the dark times or in the challenging times. This is from, the, uh, uh, from an Ojibwe shaman. He says this, Sometimes I go on pitying myself and all the time I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. Sometimes I go on pitying myself, and all the time I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. So remembering that sense of being held by something bigger than than the more narrow identity. So what comes next? I want to talk about a few other aspects of this, of this question. And we might ask ourselves, do I have a sense of what comes next for myself? Is there a way in which I'm uh, wanting to ask that question? Do I know what is to come next? Sometimes we can actually know what wants to come next And sometimes it's actually easier to know what wants to come next than to know how to get there or how to have it manifest. Sometimes we can feel a tremendous urgency. It might be to be creative or to uh, be more still or to be more in touch with nature. And sometimes we can feel that, uh, that urge very, very strongly. And yet it's hard sometimes to know how to get there or how to manifest. I think many of us feel something that is calling. We may feel this at our moments of quiet or our moments of um, insight or when the busyness falls away. And we may have, feel some deep pull. And yet it's sometimes harder to know how that can come into being. One way for it to come into being is to not have to, I think, uh, figure everything out at once but to take one step at a time. Very basic teaching. Take one step at a time. But we often uh, don't do that, do we? We, we don't want to take the first step until we know where the hundredth step is going to be. 
and that can paralyze us. There's a beautiful, let me see, there's a beautiful passage from um, the beautiful statement by Goethe. Let me see if I can find this. It actually came from, um, it's part of a passage by a man named W.H. Murray who led one of the uh, first expeditions into the Himalayas. And he talked about the importance of taking steps and, mo- and being, in a sense, committed to move in a direction and then just taking one step and letting that lead to the next step. He said this, Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issue from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance which no one could have dreamt would have come one's way. I have learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. This is from the German poet and playwright of the, I guess, the late um, 18th century, early 19th century, Goethe. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. So there's that quality of taking the first step, of taking um, a step towards that which, um, that which we know we want to move towards. There's, um, in uh, Joanna Macy's work, as I mentioned, I think I mentioned last time, there are a very interesting set of questions which she gives to people who are contemplating uh, what to do next and typically have touched something deep. You know, many times in retreats or uh, in certain moments of our life, we touch something that tells us, here's where I want to go. And she raises a number of very uh, good questions that we can ask uh, when we have a sense of what wants to come next. One of the questions is, what resources do I need to go in that direction? You know, it might be tools, it might be understandings, it might be support. What support, what resources do I need to move in that direction? Sometimes we need support from others or we need to have some tools further developed. She also asked the question, in moving in this direction, in moving towards what comes next, what obstacles am I likely to place in my own way? Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> That's a good one, too. Because if we can contemplate those obstacles, we can more readily uh, know um, how to avoid them. We can name them. And then she also asked, particularly when people are in touch with that sense of what wants to come next, what might I do in the next 24 hours to move this along even in a small way. And that is, that's the one-step idea. That we often have these wonderful ideas, but sometimes it feels big and we don't know how to make it 
very concrete and specific, so we don't take that step. And so Joanna is counseling us, what can I do in the next 24 hours that would, as it were, create a thread, uh, a link between where I am now and where I want to go, so it doesn't just remain this big thing that's just waiting to happen. One of the qualities that's most important for knowing what comes next, and I think also listening for how we might implement it, is this quality of being attentive. Remember that uh, Mary Oliver in the poem says, I don't know what a prayer is, but I do know how to be attentive. And what we train for in many ways with the mindfulness training is that we train to be able to be attentive. We train to be able to listen. Even when we don't know what's going to happen, we get some familiarity and some comfort with not knowing. And so uh, we're willing to wait to hear what we need to do. There's that wonderful story that I know I've told at least once or twice of Gandhi being at this critical juncture in his own life and in the independence movement of India where he doesn't at all know what to do. And, you know, you can imagine people going up to him and saying, hey, you're Gandhi, you're supposed to know what to do. But he says, no, I don't know what to do. It's, it's about 1929 or 30. Gandhi's been involved in the independent struggle for quite some years. And things are not apparently having much uh, headway in certain ways. The, you know, I think at that point, some of you may remember the Gandhi film. There was a massacre in the early 1920s. And the British are kind of ensconced. And Gandhi... Uh, is still being committed to the, non, the path of nonviolence in, in the independence movement, but others are questioning that. There have been a number of terrorist attacks on the British. People are saying, nonviolence isn't going to work, we have to be violent. There's a lot of dissension within the movement. And Gandhi says, I don't know what to do, and there's a lot of pressure on him to say, what should, I, what should we do? And he retires at that point to his uh, community, to his ashram, and he more or less sits on the veranda looking at the river, for six weeks. Can you imagine the, uh, there's a certain amount of um, stability there. <laughs> a certain amount of uh, trust, isn't there? A certain amount of openness. And he says, I don't know what to do, but I trust that if I listen long enough, I will hear the inner voice. And he listens and he listens and people, visitors come and say, what are you going to do? He says, I don't know. I will wait, and I will wait till I hear the inner voice. And he waits, and he waits, and after six weeks, he thinks he knows what comes next. And what comes next for him is to walk from the ashram 250 miles to the ocean and make salt against the British colonial laws, which say Indians cannot make salt in their own country. Again, imagine that. But, uh, and that particular action is a um, catalytic event. It sets up six weeks of protests and civil disobedience, and the British uh, respond with tremendous repression and violence. And in a way, uh, in in India and in much of the world, their own legitimacy to be these great civilizing 
colonial rulers, that legitimacy is broken. And it's a major, seen as a major change in the movement towards independence. And that came out of, in many ways, out of Gandhi just listening. It's a very, it's a very powerful sense. And that's really what we train for, the ability to, to listen, to be able to listen without forcing knowledge on the situation. That's not easy, is it? To be able to listen when we feel an inner pressure that we want to have an answer. And we wait for to really hear something which has more authenticity. It raises the really interesting question which we looked at some last time near the end, which I wanted to explore in more depth, of how do we discriminate between, as it were, voices, between the different voices which we hear, how do we know what are the genuine voices to follow? We could say this is the question of discernment. And it's a big question, isn't it? It was the, it was the question that came up, and should I just, how do I know whether I should follow this impulse or that in terms of what comes next? And it's actually a very deep question which really invites us to ask the question of how do I discriminate between the different voices in my own consciousness? How do I know which voices I want to follow and which voices I don't want to follow? And again, the tool of mindfulness is so important for that because first of all, we have to know what the voices are. One of the Um, problems that arises when we're not mindful is that we actually follow voices without knowing their voices, as it were. We We just have some conditioning which says, do this. And it may actually come out of fear, but we actually don't know it. So what we do with mindfulness is that we start, as it were, developing an inventory of the different voices which are present. And that's absolutely a fundamental starting point. I don't think Gandhi could probably do what he did without having a lot of sensitivity to the various voices that ran through his consciousness. And so this, a big part of this waiting for what comes next and listening for what comes next involves the ability to be mindful of the different, as it were, uh, challengers to tell us what comes next. We have to be, we, in a way, we have to be mindful of the different voices. We have to begin to discriminate, and many of us have been doing this for quite some time, between the voices which come out of fear or confusion and the voices which are more authentic. This is not easy. But there, I'll just mention a few, uh, a few guidelines, as it were, which are, have been helpful for me for making that discrimination. Again, the starting point is just hearing the voices and giving them a name and studying them. Starting to study them so that we can see, oh, that voice, that's my fear voice. Or that's my voice which is afraid of change. Or that's my voice which is um, actually courageous. You know, I know that um, occasionally for myself, and this happened uh, more earlier in my life, sometimes when I knew I had to do something that came next, and it actually had, the voice, actually had an authentic voice, my body would start shaking. Anyone experience something like that? Your, your body, and my body would shake when I knew I basically when I knew, for example, I had to be honest in a certain way in a meeting or in a relationship. 
And my, my body would start giving me cues, and I would say, oh, uh-oh, got to follow that one. Because I, I knew it enough, so I, and, I, and a lot of times I didn't want to at all, but there was a, I, t- I was able to tune in to what was more authentic. So the body can play a big role in letting us know. We can feel if there's contraction or if there's expansion with a particular um, a voice. We can uh, also really be attentive to our emotions. And so seeing the relationship of the voices to how the body is, what kind of emotional tone is present, is there fear, is there excitement, what's present, that helps tremendously. There's also, in a way, something I have found in my own experience, that, which is something like a, uh, a voice that I can really trust and I can think for myself that there was a time when that emerged in my life. It was very interesting. Uh, I was, it emerged actually on a meditation retreat. And I was, um, I'll say it emerged with a really explicit quality on a, on a retreat. I was doing a two-week ret- two retreat at uh, the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts. And I was in my 20s. And I was... Um, doing walking meditation. It was probably a week or 10 days into the retreat. And I was doing walking meditation and I started to feel myself being afraid of some of the people nearby. And it was confusing. Why am I afraid? You know, and I kept walking and I could feel some fear as if, you know, I I won't, I, I didn't really know what it was about. And at a certain point, again, this was in the middle of stillness, I just stopped and I, ha- I really felt an urge to answer the question, why am I afraid? And I asked the question, this was like spontaneously happening, and I didn't have to answer to anyone, but I really wanted to know myself. And I just stopped and asked, why am I doing this? And something, I got an answer. It was basically, you know, it was, um, I got a clear answer. And for myself, there was something, that voice started to grow and I started to be able to call upon it. I sometimes called it my no BS voice. Do you know that voice in yourself? That I could really trust and that I didn't have to necessarily share. But if there was some kind of opening to this voice. I, I love the Quakers call it the still small voice. This, sometimes We sometimes talk about it as the voice of conscience. But it was a, a kind of voice that uh, I could trust and that, would, that was connected with authenticity. And it wasn't, uh, and I could really ask it, and I could really see, am I really sure about this? And I could, if I was honest, I could sometimes notice it. So that's another resource, tremendous resource for discriminating. When should I follow this voice? When should I not? There's something, <coughs> we can tap into something in ourselves that is very, very honest, that's beneath the surface of the rationalizations, the conditioned voices, and so forth. And that's when that gets accessed, we can then know it and we can strengthen it and we can rely on it. And that's, that's been a very interesting experience. So I think I'll, I'll close and move on to some time for us to talk to each other by saying that uh, this quality of faith in what comes next, as I mentioned, is a kind of a faith in the, 
It's basically a faith in ourselves as being a naturally unfolding organism that moves towards beautiful qualities. And there's a kind of a faith there in it's, uh, it's really to say that our own development isn't, as it were, a personal construction. At the depths, our own evolution is not a personal construction or, as it were, a cultural construction, but that there's something deep and organic within our being that wants to come out. And so it's, it's a very uh, powerful statement. I think we find that um, in so many traditions. I think maybe probably most expressed in maybe the Taoist tradition where there's this sense of this natural unfolding of the uh, wild creative human being, that we can, something we can trust. Again, it takes that discrimination, but there's a quality of naturalness, of wildness, which we find in, I think, many expressions uh, in Buddhist tradition and in other traditions that um, in the teachings of the Buddha, the deepest understanding is called the unconditioned. It's something which is not something, our deepest wisdom is not connected with something that we produce or that comes out of our effort, but in some ways it's a relaxing into something that's already present. Of course, we need to, in order to do this, it's very helpful to have friends, to have meditation, traditions, cultures, but the deepest claim is that, as it were, if if I would paraphrase Lao Tzu or something, we're kind of helping along what's a natural process with all the paradoxes that can get involved in. And that we, we in a way, uh, trust more and more in the very nature of being. I know for myself in certain, particularly certain times of retreat, there I, I have felt a kind of sinking. It's almost like it feels sometimes like an ability to sink into the ground. And I'm sure many of you, maybe most of us, have felt something like this, where I, in a way, I rest. I trust myself, my life, to rest in being, to rest in the very nature of being, or we sometimes speak of the ground of being. And that's, I think, the ultimate understanding that really, as we deepen towards that, that permits us to really to trust in this process of inviting what comes next and coming to know what comes next and increasingly knowing how to discriminate the voices which are problematic from the voices which are to be trusted. And so it's, I think it's a very important understanding for us and to, as we mentioned last time, to be able to do this. One of the most important um, ways to act in this, to act, to facilitate this um, unfolding, especially in this culture which is so busy, is to cre- help create the space for what, for where what comes next can actually come. It's to create the space, to create some open space and time so that we're not ruled by the everyday conditioning and the everyday worries. And so for many of us to invite uh, the depths to come 
next means that we have to create some space from the busyness. We have to, as we do in an ordinary, everyday way, maybe when we meditate, in a way we're inviting what comes next. We're inviting the depths. We're saying, I need to carve out some space and time to do that. I need to... um, I need to invite my own being to manifest and have the free time and space to do so. So I think I'll close just with an expression of that, which actually comes from a conversation that I had with uh, Joanna Macy. And I'll just read the, the um, end of this, in which she, she expresses this sense of creating space. And it really relates to this, this uh, one way of asking the question, what comes next? At this point in my life, she says, and she was coming into her 70s, I believe, when she said this, it does feel like the wheel of time is turning and bringing me into greater simplicity, particularly in terms of how I allocate attention and energy. I want to let go of being busy. There was a time when I thought that being busy showed that I was important. Of course, it's quite subtle, isn't it? (laughs) I have a great yearning to drop the busyness for stillness. Maybe I want stillness more than simplicity. I really want to attend to be present in this world. Among other things, it involves letting go of distractions and interruptions. Questions that now seem relevant to me are, do I need this? Can I drop this? Can I experience that the world is alive? How can I best experience this? How can I open to radically new visions and understandings? To follow these questions, I feel that I have to hold still. Otherwise, the slightest bit of hurry or worry, they're related, (laughs) trips me into habitual thoughts and the old worn grooves of the mental terrain. For true originality which requires true presence, one needs to hold still like a deer in the woods. Listen. Listen. Look. Thank you. That's the end of the story. So thank you. This is from Achan Cha, the Thai teacher, Jack Kornfield's main teacher. It's about this really uh, growing ability to trust in, a, in the natural unfolding. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind and heart will become still in any surroundings. Your mind will be like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful rare animals will come to drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness, he says, of the Buddha. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So we offer what's been of value from the morning for the healing and benefit of all beings.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.